Okay, first one is, uh, who do you think wrote Hebrews? Don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So you obviously don't think Paul wrote it, which is one of the main uh, options for people. I think there are very good reasons for doubting that Paul wrote it. Uh, I know the debates in the patristic period, and you can make your case. But I think one of the things you have to say is that if God had wanted us to know the answer to that, then he could have jolly well told us. I mean, there are 13 epistles with Paul's name. Um, It's surprising if he wrote one without his name attached to it. And if God had wanted us to know that, I'm sure that God could have arranged it so that his name would have been attached to it. So I have to conclude that it's not something that God wants us to know. So why lose any sleep over it? Good. Uh, this one says, hello, Don. After, Hi. <laughs> whoever, whoever you are. After reading Hebrews 1.14, where the writer speaks of angels being ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, could you please comment on how we should view our own salvation in the light of this verse and the role of angels in human lives? Well, what the Bible says about that is... Uh, fairly brief. There are hints, but not much more. The book of Daniel pictures some angels being used by God with respect to entire nations. And uh, Jesus speaks of little children whose angels are always before the presence of God, which presupposes some sort of guardian angel or something like that. Um, uh, On the other hand, the Bible depicts the sphere of our moral conflict as, as being here where we are, yet that's part of a bigger cosmic conflict uh, in which, in which uh, Satan and all of his rebellious demonic forces are in a huge conflict with, with um, God and, and righteousness and uh, e- even one good angel who is named Michael. Um, so that there are small visions of, of um, uh, a cosmic spiritual conflict of which uh, our struggles are a part. Um, What you do have to observe is that although there has arisen a redeemer for fallen human beings, there is no hint of any salvation for fallen angels. And so it's not too surprising that verse 14, therefore, says that the good angels, our ministering spirits, sent to those who belong to the elect, who belong to those whose destiny is, in fact, salvation. It's human beings that have been made in the image of God, not angelic forces. Um, so I'm suspicious of those sorts of books that, that then have a detailed hierarchy of everything about angels and where principalities and powers and angels and beasts and so on all fit into all of this. You can say a few things about them. Um, different words are used, cherubim and seraphim. You can say a few things from those words and and so on, but, but there's a huge amount that we don't know. So I'm, again, a little suspicious of a too detailed angelology. Okay. Uh, you've shown us clearly how the story fits together through the Bible. However, when you say that, for example, entering the promised land was entering into rest, then later God made it clear that this was not the final rest. Does this not paint God as a deceiver? Surely the people at the time should have known, not just the people who came after Well, um, when you uh, teach uh, elementary Greek uh, to students in the first year of Bible college, you say things like, um, autos is a pronoun that means he. That's the truth. Later on, you discover that sometimes it functions as a reflexive pronoun. Sometimes it doesn't mean he. It means himself, itself, even yourself, herself, themselves even, and so on, so on, so on. But you don't say all of that the first time around. It's just, it's just too much, too fast to absorb. And when you teach um, uh, calculus, you, you, give, you give simple answers. Um, when you have children growing up in the home, you give answers that you try to make the truth, but they might be, uh, from an adult's perspective, a reductionistic perception of the truth. And even when you give theological answers, um, you, if you try to give everything, the first time somebody... See, when I first met my wife, um, poor woman, she, um, she was not a believer. She was dragged along by a Christian friend to an evangelistic meeting I was speaking at in Cambridge. She let the record show she was impressed neither by the message nor the messenger. And... Uh, <laughs> 
Well, in due course, she got converted, and uh, a year and a half later, eventually, we were engaged and got married and, and, and so forth. Um, but, but during this time when she was growing, she would ask biblical questions and theological questions. And initially, I was so stupid that I would then try and dump on her, you know, what I, what, what I knew about what she was asking. And then eventually, you get a little smarter and you realize that for, for any, any Christian, you give um, shorter answers, briefer answers, simplified answers, hopefully not wrong answers. And so, uh, likewise, that's part of God's way in dealing with the human race and indeed with the, the people of Israel. He says true things. It was, for them, a land of rest. Still wasn't the ultimate rest. Nothing that he said was untrue. But on the other hand, it took time for him to unpack the layers and so on and to establish the patterns that ultimately really did run forward. In fact, that's the very nature of typology, isn't it? Typology is... A person, an event, or a thing that gets repeated and ratcheted up with time until you have a trajectory that is pointing forward to something. That's, in other words, not all the prophecies of the Bible are verbal predictions which then are fulfilled in events. A relatively small proportion are. There are some verbal predictions that are fulfilled in events, but a lot of Old Testament so-called prophecies are in fact trajectories. That is, a person, place, or institution which then is repeated and ratcheted up in intensity, ratcheted up until you've got a whole pattern that's looking forward to something, and then the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ. That too is prophetic, it's predictive, it's looking forward. But when the first anchor in that projection is given, you don't see the whole thing. It, it takes a pattern before you see the pattern. Do, do, do you see? That's not deception. It's merely deciding that it is a, a, a wise and good thing in some cases to build a pattern slowly with time. And so that's part of what is meant by the progress of redemption. Why did God create and give a covenant that he knew was flawed? Hebrews 9, 7 to 13. Does this reflect an imperfection uh, in God's ability. Don't, don't forget that that text it speaks of the, the, the God found fault with the covenant. And then he explains a, a little farther in the next verse or two that the real fault was with the people. That is, God finds fault with a covenant in that it is unable to produce the transformation. Of course, God knows that from the beginning. But the, the moral fault in all of that is precisely that the people are morally uh, failing and therefore cannot live up to the terms of the covenant. But in terms of the broad sweep of redemptive history, what that uh, works toward is establishing in the people's mind their own guilt. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's the significance of Romans 1.18 all the way to 3.20. Uh, don't, don't you see that Jew and Gentile alike, whether they have the law, whether they don't have the law, they don't live up to the standards, you cannot be good enough. Already the Old Testament is saying that again and again and again. Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and so on, so on, so on. How do you teach people that? You can't teach people that in the abstract. What, what you do is, is you establish standards and laws, and this is what God wants, and people swear to it, and then they don't live up to it, and they, they can't live up to it, and so on. Well, the law in that sense is a failure. It's flawed in the sense that it cannot, it cannot produce the power that actually transforms. On the other hand, it does succeed in doing what God wants it to do in the stream of redemptive history, which is part of Paul's point in, Ephesians, in, in, uh, in Galatians 3. One of, one of the functions of the law... Um, I mean, there are functions of the law like providing a constitution for the nation of Israel and, 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 and so on. But one of the functions of the law across the whole stream of redemptive history is precisely to establish how ugly sin is, how, 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 how quick we are to trespass, how lost we are. In that sense, the law was wonderfully effective. It, it eventually produced a, a deep, deep consciousness of just how rebellious we are. Um, as Paul puts it, uh, you know, he doesn't really know how bad it all is until the law comes along and says, you shall not. And then he does it, does it anyway, and, and so he's learned something from it. So from one perspective, the law thus is a failure. It doesn't save. It doesn't transform. From another perspective, in its place and role and function in redemptive history, it's wonderfully effective in preparing the way for the cross. Uh, Hebrews 8 says, paraphrased, uh, men that die receive tithes, but Melchizedek that lives receives Abraham's tithe. Uh, what does this mean? It's not chapter 8, it's chapter 7. Okay. But I'm not sure what verse he's uh, talking about. Say, say that again. Men that die receive tithes, but Melchizedek that lives receives Abraham's tithes. Uh, and that's, it's misquoted somehow. Okay. 7 verse 8, okay. Chapter 7 verse 8. 
You want to read it out? Uh, in the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. What is meant by that is in the one case, that is, in the case of the Levites, which is what the previous verses are talking about. Let me, let me back up a bit. Verse 6, um, this man, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he, Levi, collected, no, sorry, yet he, uh, Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, namely the Levites. They were ordained by God under the Mosaic law uh, to collect uh, the tithes for the whole people for the purpose of maintaining the temple and so forth. But in the other case, the case of Melchizedek, by him who is declared to be living. What is meant by declared to be living is... Um, what, what is talked about all along in the chapter. That is, he has neither father nor mother. He has no beginning of days nor end of life. There's no genealogy. And thus, he is like the Son of God. He, is, he, he just is. He is there. He is declared to be living. So Melchizedek comes along and, and collects tithes from Abraham, the patriarch of the entire um, uh, uh, Israelite line. Whereas the Levites and their priesthood, they are within the Israelite line. They collect from their brothers, but these are all people, priests and Levites, who, who do die. They, 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 they have a temporary role to play, and then it gets passed on to somebody else. Whereas Melchizedek, uh, there's no record of his death, and, and so on. So he becomes an ideal uh, symbol for the ultimate Melchizedek, who, who really is eternal and, and, and receives uh, homage from, from, from everyone. Hebrews 11.23 says Moses' parents saw that he was no ordinary child when he was born and so hid him. They are commended for their faith in doing this. How could Moses' parents know he was going to be such a special person just by looking at him? Surely they just hid him because they were trying to save his life and this would mean that they were afraid of the king's edict. Was hiding Moses not a desperate attempt to save his life rather than an act of faith? Um, uh, that's a slightly cynical reading of history. Um, that is to say, you, you, might, you might fear the king's edict uh, in the sense that you realize that if you leave the baby out, um, he's going to die, and you don't want the king to have his way. So fearing the king's edict, you hide the baby. But on another interpretation of the same events, you don't fear the king's edict so much that you give into it. Um, uh, consider, for example, um, uh, French uh, civilians in World War II who um, decided to hide Jews when the authorities were rounding them up, uh, or similar things in Holland. But let's stick with France. Uh, do they fear um, uh, the Nazi edict? Well, from one perspective, um, um, yeah, they, they, they fear the Nazi edict. They, they, they realize that if they don't intervene and do something, all these people are going to die. They, they fear it. Of course they fear it. From another perspective, they don't fear it. That is, they defy it, and they realize it could cost them their lives. And because of it, some of them do pay with their lives. In that sense, they defy the edict, and, and in that sense, they, they, they don't fear it. You see, in exactly the same way here, um, obviously in one sense, they, 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 they fear the edict because they hide the baby. That's, that's why they hide the baby, because of the edict. On the other hand, um, I'm sure that there were many, many um, parents who, who decided to go along with it, and, and their babies did die. But, but they defied the edict, and in that sense, they, they, they don't live their lives in fear. Um, they defy it at whatever the cost. And in this case, that it worked out very well. When it says they saw the child was no ordinary child... Who knows what that means? I mean, that, that could mean... I mean, have you ever found, met parents that don't think their child is... No, is, is, is you know? Hey, folks, I've got an ordinary child. I mean, I, I haven't met parents like that. You, you, know, you, you know? So it, it may mean nothing more than that. Uh, I just haven't met parents that think their child is ordinary. And... and um, uh, but it may be, too, that they, 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 they were listening to God and looking for a time of, 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 uh, of a coming Messiah, and God whispered in their ear that this child was going to be special along those lines. That's also possible. But we don't know that from any text in the Old Testament. It could be hinted at here, but it could be a pretty innocent sort of generic way of talking, too. You discussed the accusation of the Hebrews author taking Old Testament quotes out of context in his letter. What about the accusation that he misquotes the Old Testament? Some say chapter 10, verse 5b, and chapter 10, 38 are inaccurately quoted. 
Yeah, uh, the, the accuracy-inaccuracy uh, charge is usually based in the Epistle of the Hebrews on the fact that the author always quotes from the LXX, the Greek Septuagint, or something similar to it, and not from the Hebrew MT, the Masoretic Text, or something similar to it. In other words, the Old Testament bits that he quotes are all from the Hebrew Old Testament, but he doesn't quote the Hebrew, he quotes the Greek translation. Usually it doesn't make much difference. In a few cases it does make a a, a difference, and you're left a bit trying to figure out why he's done what he's done. If you want... um, uh, a sort of systematic treat, treatment of how you handle um, Old Testament quotations that are based on the Greek Septuagint rather than the Hebrew original. There's a really good article by Moises Silva in a book that John Woodbridge and I edited about 30 years ago called Scripture and Truth. And he works through um, something like 25 different possible explanations in different cases depending on what, what's going on. Um, uh, how much time have I got to answer this one? I mean, I could take, take one of the ones um, that he's mentioned in, in, um, in, in Hebrews 10 as, as, um, as an example. Hebrews 10, he quotes um, um, uh, Psalm 40. Uh, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Now, if you go back to uh, Psalm 40... Uh, it reads very differently in our Bibles because in our Bibles it's, it's using the, um, the Hebrew. Um, so, Psalm 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened, my text says. Uh, versus a body you have prepared for me. Um, in, fact, in fact, the Hebrew is, is something like, but my ears you have pierced. Um, or the, the same verb pierced can mean my ears you have dug. And so people have pondered what that means. It's, it's, it's a really difficult thing to know just what, what is being meant. Some have thought my ears you have pierced is referring to the ear piercing ceremony in the Old Testament where if a person becomes a slave, maybe on economic grounds, they, they've, 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 they've gone belly up and in, there are no bankruptcy protection laws, they sell themselves as slaves, but, but under Israelite law, after seven years you're supposed to be released. It wasn't really slavery, it was sort of indentured servitude. And, uh, and then at the end of seven years, the economy's still bad, 30% unemployment, he's not going to get a job elsewhere. Meanwhile, this master's really pretty good, he's providing housing for him, food for him, he's got a job, he can support his family, and so on. So he decides this would be a good thing, he'd like to stay with this master. Then he could have his ears pierced, that is, the earlobe was put on the wall of the master's door and pierced with a, with a sharp awl into the door as a way of signifying that this chap wants to remain permanently in this household rather than being released at the end of seven years. So that my ears you have pierced, if that's what is meant, is, is, is a way of saying I, I want to be your servant forever. But I don't think that's a proper explanation because in every instance where we know of the ear-piercing ceremony from the ancient world, it was one ear, and this is plural, my ears you have pierced. So others have thought, I think this is more likely, that this means my ears you have dug out or my ears you have dug, and you think, good grief, what on earth does that mean? And if in that case, what I have to say is you've never met my mother. Um, <laughs> m- my mother was a cockney with all kinds of interesting expressions, some of them are rhyming slang and all the rest, but, but if, 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 if we kids, when we were growing up, were not paying attention, then, um, th- then she would say something like, dig out your ears! Uh, now, she was not really quoting the Hebrew, but... Um, <laughs> But we got the point. Uh, my ears you have dug out is a way of saying, um, my ear, you have so enabled me to hear that I listen to your word and do it. And it, uh, the verb is different, but one of the servant songs of Isaiah has exactly the same point made with respect to the servant who listens to, to the words of his father and does the father's will. Um, here's the servant saying in Isaiah 50. Um, the Sovereign Lord has given me the well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen to like one being instructed. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and, 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 and spitting. You see, here's the servant saying that he obeys the voice of his heavenly Father all the way to suffering and torture and ultimately the cross. Did you see? My ears you have opened. 
So that makes sense, and that, that's why the, 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 the version I'm reading, NIV 2011, paraphrases it, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. It's a way of saying, um, I've been obedient. I offer myself entirely to you. I, body and soul and life, I'm, I'm yours. That, that, that's what it means. So I can imagine that the Greek translator is looking for a way of getting this across. You know, if he said, any, anybody who, does, who works in different languages know that this is a constant problem. For, for example, in English, our English word home. How do you say home in French? How do you say home in anybody? Who, how do you say home in French? Maison is house. Chez nous, at our place. Au foyer, in, in, at, at the hearth. I mean, there is no French word for home. None. So how are you going to sing, home, home on the range? House, house on the range? It doesn't have the same... So you're, you're left with, with choices in translation to try to get things across. And I can imagine the Greek translator saying, my ears you have pierced, dug out? Good grief, how am I going to say that? Did you see? And he sees that the, the notion, the understanding of it is, is, I offer myself body and soul to you. I, I will be obedient. And so he paraphrases it, but a body you prepared for me. It, it might be a symbol, and then it's akin to the notion that Paul has in, 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 in Romans chapter 12. Um, um, uh, uh, you, are offer, you are to offer your body as a living sacrifice, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service, you see. So it might be as simple as an explanation as that. But, but I, could, I could list several other explanations. And sometimes we just don't know enough to, to fathom exactly why it came out this way. So... Um, I think I've worked through all of the ones in Hebrews where there are some of these disputes, and Moises Silva works through a few more, and, and, and uh, it, it, is, it is part of the challenge. And sometimes you, you can only give likely explanations. You just don't know enough to be quite sure what was going on in the translator's mind. Let's move on to uh, apostasy, backsliding, uh, Hebrews 5 and 6 that we dealt with yesterday. Um, in light of yesterday's discussion on apostasy and applying to a, family, <clears throat> to a family situation where family members have made professions and seem to follow God for a number of years but today have fallen away, what advice could you give in witnessing to them, viewing their spiritual condition? Um, I mentioned that briefly, that, that one has to be very careful about uh, confusing apostasy with a kind of maturation as people grow up and are distancing themselves from their parents and, and sometimes from their parents' views as part of, 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 of gaining um, independent affirmation of, of the faith. Um, in terms of pastoral wisdom, uh, it seems to me that... Y- as long as a person is not showing any signs of interest in the gospel or the Lord or his word, you have to assume that they're unbelievers. Now, they may be believers that are temporarily backsliding, but you don't know that. You have to assume they're unbelievers. And what you do with unbelievers is preach the gospel to them. You share your faith. You talk about the Lord. Um, that, 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 that's what you do. But in most cases, you are not authorized to imagine that they have so apostatized that there's no hope for them. Um, because apostates don't normally go around with big marks on their forehead saying, I'm an apostate, therefore don't witness to me. Um, There can be a situation like the one um, that describes what God says to Samuel regarding Saul, where God actually tells Samuel, don't pray for him anymore, I have rejected him. And you get something of the same sort of hint at the end of um, 1 John 5, uh, where we're told to pray for certain people who are falling away and so on. Um, but I do not say to pray for certain others um, wh- where the falling away is viewed as they've become antichrist themselves, they've fallen under this sort of um, a- apostasy that puts them so far out the, outside the camp that they come ba- can't come back in. I have known one or two situations where I'm pretty sure I'm dealing with plain, flat-out apostasy. But I don't claim any sort of superior spiritual insight into these matters. And as a matter of principle, um, if we don't have some special insight into those things, you just have to assume you're dealing with unbelievers and preach the gospel to them and hope and pray that they will become Christians in due course. Um, It's not uncommon for people brought up in Christian homes to make professions of faith whether or not they're real. And, um, and, And then the reality comes along a little later. 
uh, in, even in my own case, I couldn't tell you um, if I became a Christian at eight, almost nine, I was brought up in a strong Christian home, or if I became a Christian in second year university. Couldn't tell you. Um, I don't think it matters all that much. It matters whether I trust Christ now. Uh, I have a mental checklist of things to ask God on the last day. And one of them is, when did you save me? (laughs) And I suspect what he'll say with a small smile on his face from before the foundation of the world, my son. (laughs) Um, So, so, um, uh, uh, since the question was, how do you handle things pastorally? That's how you handle things pastorally. I I went through a period of doubt in my Christian life uh, in a gap year in South Africa and it was to do with could I, have a, could I find a time that I was converted uh, and I uh, couldn't. went to a pastor and I shared my doubts with him. And he was very helpful. He said, uh, took me to John chapter 3, and the spirit is like the wind that blows where it pleases. And he said, um, children brought up in Christian homes, the spirit is like a gentle breeze in some cases. And kids brought up from non-Christian homes yeah. that have a very... And you know, uh, no Christian influence whatsoever. It's like a hurricane that yeah. comes into their life, and it was quite a helpful thing for me to realize I didn't need the hurricane conversion to be sure that I'd yeah. been saved at some point. I I don't like you have a time, yeah. you know. But um, I, I find well, that I have two helpful. times. That's my well. Problem. You're double, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got uh, you know insur- double hurricanes in- for really stubborn people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you've got insurance if you've got yeah. two. Like. But you. As- <laughs> As that verse puts it, you know, it's like the wind. Um, you do not know where it come from, comes from or where it is going, but you see its effects. Mm. So it is with everyone who is born of God. Mm. So uh, in the case of Nicodemus and, and Jesus, you know, they see the sycamore leaves swaying in the breeze or a tumbleweed dancing down the street. And, 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 and nobody's saying, now is this cyclonic or anticyclonic over the Arabian Gulf? You, you, you know, they, they don't know where it's coming from or how it's generated. They knew even less about meteorology than we do. But nevertheless, the important thing is they see the effects. So it is with everyone who is born of God. So if a person genuinely is regenerate, you will see the effects in their lives somewhere. By their fruit, you shall know them. They'll grow at different rates. They'll produce fruit at different uh, percentages of increase and all of that. But, but even if you can't explain the mechanics and isolate the moment and all the rest, what you can see is the, is, is, is the fruit of, of, of regeneration. Regarding your teaching yesterday on a genuine work of the Holy Spirit leading to conviction of sin, tasting of the heavenly gift, etc., but not leading to genuine saving faith that perseveres to the end, how do you reconcile this with God's work in salvation from first to last? Is God not dangling a carrot in front of such people and then pulling it away? Well, um, again, to put it uh, uh, so cynically... Is, is really a way of saying that if um, God does not save everyone, there's some fault in God. Whereas uh, the Bible lives constantly with a tension between God saving people by his sovereign grace and inviting everyone in sovereign grace and the fact that if people don't believe, at the end of the day, the fault is, is, is finally theirs. So you, instead of constructing this sort of thing as God has given them so much and then he's yanked it away, you could equally construct it, God gives them so much and still they finally reject him. Now that's much closer to the way the Bible talks about these things because there is a human accountability and responsibility. If you don't believe, at the end of the day, you're responsible for not believing. And, 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 and far from blaming God... God is to be praised for giving so much and people still turn away from the light. That's the frame of reference in which those sorts of things are worked out in, in biblical categories. And if you say, oh boy, that just sounds just a wee bit too convenient for God, I would say, um, it's the way it is. That is the way the Bible discusses it. And it's part of the running tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility throughout the scriptures. And, and, and we're responsible, it seems to me, for trying to work these things out in a similar way. Um, if you've never read anything in the area, um, chapters 11 and 12 of my book, How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil might be of some help, where it tries to talk about 
the, the tensions that exist in the scripture between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, to, 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 use, um, to use an answer, a, a passage or two biblically, th- think of Genesis chapter 50. Um, uh, Joseph has died and uh, Jacob has died, uh, Joseph has, uh, Jacob has died, and, and, and the brothers of Joseph are worried that Joseph is now going to take out retribution upon them. And, and Joseph himself is a bit disturbed that his brothers think so poorly of him. And, and so referring back to the terrible events when his brothers sold him into slavery and all of that, what, 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 J, what Joseph says is, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, Think carefully what Joseph does not say. He does not say, God was snoozing that day. He wasn't paying attention, and you guys sold me into slavery. But he's such a matchless chess player that he came along and made counter moves, and it turned out all right in the end. It doesn't say that. Nor does he say, God intended that I would be driven down in an air-conditioned chauffeur-driven limousine, but unfortunately you guys mucked it up, and as a result, I, I, I ended up going down as a slave. It doesn't say that. But rather, in one and the same event, God's intentions were good and the human intentions were bad. And they are responsible for their evil intentions and God is to be credited for his good. For the truth of the matter is that although God's sovereignty extends over everything, yet in Scripture, God stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. He stands behind good such that the good is finally to be credited to him. He stands behind evil so that it never escapes the outermost bounds of his sovereignty. But the evil itself is never to be credited to God, but finally to secondary causalities, like the brothers who are being so wicked in this particular case. And, and, and the same is true even of the cross. Go and read um, Acts 4, 27 and 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the rulers of the Jews, they conspired against your holy servant Jesus, and so on, so on, so on. Next verse. They did what your hand had determined beforehand should be done. And you need both verses to make sense of the gospel. On the one hand, there are wicked people who are conspiring to bump Jesus off. On the other hand, God is still doing his, 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 his good to bring Christ to the cross. If, if God had not been operating, then Jesus' death on the cross would have been just an accident of history. It would have had no moral significance. But the fact that God is behind the cross does not mean that Pontius Pilate can't be charged with corruption of justice. And the fact that there's a conspiracy amongst the leaders and so on does not mean that the cross is an aftersight that God hadn't thought up and it just sort of happened. Rather, this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world, crucified in God's mind, according to Revelation, before the foundation of the world. You're left with that running tension all the time, such that the good is always creditable to God, credited to God and the evil is finally credited to secondary causalities. Sometimes I feel my faith is very weak. Does that mean that it is not God-given? And is it just me trying to believe? Probably not. Um, The important thing to remember is that faith's ultimate strength does not depend on the faith, but on faith's object. You're saved not on the basis of how strong your faith is, but on the reliability of faith's object, which, in fact, you may cling to still pretty weakly. And ultimately, the stronger you see, the more clearly you see that at the end of the day, it's not the strength of your faith that is the crucial thing, but the reliability and truthfulness of faith's object that is the crucial thing, the more you'll be driven to having stronger faith. Because if you try to strengthen your faith by simply churning up your stomach muscles to believe more strongly then you're wanting the faith to be the thing that is the crucial ingredient rather than faith's object. At the end of the day, you're saved by faith in the sense that faith is the means of salvation. But you're not saved by faith in the abstract. You're saved by Christ. You're saved by the correct object of faith, namely Christ and Christ crucified and so on. So the way you will strengthen your faith is not by simply churning up your stomach muscles to try harder to believe. The way you'll strengthen your faith is by studying Christ. And the more you understand him and his crossword and the scripture his crosswork and the scriptures and so on, the more you'll strengthen your faith. The evangelist you mentioned at the beginning of your uh, third talk that renounced his faith, I think he died as an agnostic 
Charles Templeton. Yes. Uh, how is it possible for him to have led so many people to the Lord if he possibly was not saved to begin with? It's a very good question. <clears throat> not an easy one to answer, except you do have to say that it is the gospel that saves people and not the evangelist. So for all of those years, he was proclaiming gospel truth. And gospel truth sometimes is used by God and his spirit to, to bring about conversions. Even when, even when um, um, the evangelist himself may, may have been lurking away in the darkness, so long as he's still preaching and teaching the truth, God will still honor his truth. So the fruitfulness, we, we sometimes think that when there's revival or when, when there is... Um, a ministry of peculiar blessing. It's because of some intrinsic goodness in the evangelist or in the minister. But, but that is denying, again, the fact that God is sovereign there, too. I mean, I know missionaries who have served in Japan for years and years and years. They're good and godly people with immense experience, but it's such a hard field. They've seen almost nothing. And I've seen other, other missionaries in other parts of the world where they've seen huge amounts of fruit. Are they all more holy, more godly, more righteous, more spiritual than those working in the hard places? No, 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 no. There are different soils as well, do you, do you see? And sometimes there is more to be said for the evangelist working in a hard place who still perseveres to the end and sees very little fruit. Samuel Zwamer worked for 40 years among the Arabs and saw eight converts, three of whom were, were killed. But on the other hand, he laid the foundation for modern Muslim missions. And... Um, uh, so, so if that's the case, why should it be thought so strange that somebody who does articulate the truth very, very well, but who is himself got a double heart, uh, should not see fruitful ministry? Uh, it's, it might even be God's uh, uh, kind way of reminding us again and again and again that at the end of the day, if people are converted, it's because of the truth of the gospel and his powerful work of the Spirit, not because of how holy we evangelists are. Uh, final question in relation to Hebrews 6. Um, can, it's a clarification issue around the assurance question. Uh, how can we be uh, sure that we are not the people of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6? It, it's a very good question. Uh, but I think that behind that question sometimes is... Uh, let me overstate it and then I'll back off the wrong sort of curiosity God does not offer us uh, a kind of theoretical assurance about um, where we fit in the whole scheme of things Um, what he offers us is a practical assurance so long as we're looking to Christ. So if you want a sort of carte blanche um, assurance, the following three people are elect from before the foundation of the earth. The following people are reprobates. And in between there are some people who will give an appearance of faith, but, but in fact they're phonies. Um, let's have some criteria for, for getting them all sorted out, maybe marks in their forehead or twisted eyeballs or whatever, some, something to, to mark them out. Did, did you see? That's not the kind of assurance that the, that, that the Bible gives. The kind of assurance that the Bible gives is maximum assurance to those who cast themselves on Christ because Christ is sufficient. Christ has paid our debt. Christ's sacrifice is accepted before God. Christ has been vindicated. He's been raised from the dead. He keeps his word. and So, so it's, that's the kind of personal assurance um, um, uh, that the Bible offers. And if instead you are looking for the assurance that says, yeah, but how close can I get to the edge of the cliff before I fall off? How can I be assured that I will never actually tip over the edge? Um, Then the answer is, don't be an idiot. Don't get close to the cliff. I mean, um, focus on Christ. Do you see? That's the kind of assurance that the passage is offering, it seems to me. Let's move beyond Hebrews, but more broader out. This one is sort of connected. You spoke about the theme of rest running through Scripture. Uh, Christians have different views and practices <clears throat> about the fourth commandment and the Sabbath. How should Christians apply this command? Oh, 25 words or less. Um, about 30 years ago, I edited a, a book called From Sabbath to Lord's Day. Um, 
the, the standard uh, Sabbatarian view in Westminster Confession and um, um, uh, not quite as forcefully but still present in Heidelberg Confession and, and, and elsewhere is that the New Testament documents make Sunday the Christian Sabbath. Um, that forces you to say that the Sabbath law in the Old Testament, in the Decalogue, as found in Exodus 20, uh, is made up of two parts. That is, a principal eternal moral part, which, which presupposes one day in seven, and a kind of uh, ceremonial temporal a- aspect to it, namely that it is the seventh day. Because the text actually does say the seventh day. It doesn't just say one day in seven. And then the New Testament comes along and changes the ceremonial part by making it Sunday. And, um, and that is inferred by the fact that in various New Testament texts, Christians are meeting on the first day of the week and, 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 and so on. And, and so that becomes the warrant for seeing that Sunday is part of the eternal moral order of God and it is, uh, it, it is now the Christian Sabbath. There are others who argue... Um, that the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath rest promises uh, are the gospel, and that the, there's no unambiguous transfer theology. That, that is, by the practice of the church, the first Jews, all the first Christians were Jews after all, the first Jews who became Christians still worshipped on Sabbath at first, but then also met on Sunday, which was the day of the Lord's resurrection, um, for their own meetings, but they still continued for some time in Jerusalem meeting on the Sabbath and then also on, on the Sunday. In the Roman world, they worked on a, on a, on a ten-day week. It wasn't a seven-day week. So, so the Jews then were meeting on Saturday and the Christians were meeting on Sunday. And, and, um, and that distinguished Jew from Christian in, in, in terms of, of, of the Roman world and both of them were out of cycle with the Roman, with the Roman week. And, um, uh, and, and yet... For, for all the, the passages that do speak of the Lord's Day, that's one reference, Revelation 1.10, or in chapter 16, on the first day of the week, put aside your tithes and so on for the, for the collection for the poor in Jerusalem and so on. There are all these references. What is really interesting is that there is no actual passage that, that declares there is a transfer of theology and Sunday is now the Christian Sabbath. It's all an inference from such passages. And what I would say is, instead of resolving this one completely... There are some things that Christians from different persuasions ought to be absolutely convinced of. Number one, regardless of your views on Sunday and Sabbath, you have to see that the, the, the ultimate Sabbath is the salvation of God. That's the ultimate Sabbath. It's Sabbath rest with God. And second, you have to see that Christians did meet on the Lord's Day for purposes of worship. Now, whether or not there was a whole undergirding transfer of theology, if you're going to follow the practice of the early church in that regard, um, then, then undoubtedly Christians did meet on the Lord's Day, the day of the Lord's resurrection, for corporate worship, instruction, praise, and, 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 and so on, so on, so on. And I can't think of a single reason why that practice should be abolished. And then um, thirdly, quite apart from whether or not you think that there is a whole day of rest that is mandated, there are lots and lots of biblical teachings about how important rest is and how work can itself become idolatry. Um, Even Jesus tells his disciples, come aside and rest a while. Um, So far as the text goes, it doesn't make sure that it's either Saturday or Sunday, but it is acknowledging the principle that you can work yourself to death and work itself can become a kind of idol. A good thing can become a bad thing as soon as it becomes the most important thing. So all of those things we can agree on uh, wholeheartedly, it seems to me. And then after that, there will be some differences in terminology about how we actually go about expressing some of these things. Okay. Um, Moving on to other important issues. Uh, Where did you buy your jackets? (laughs) I am such a bad shopper that uh, once in a while, um, once in a while, I will buy a jacket for myself, but it's more likely that my wife will say, Don, you've been wearing that too long. It's worn out. It's frayed. You look disgusting. I'm ashamed to be seen with you. Here's another one. And so uh, this particular one, I, I, I swiped from my brother-in-law who, uh, for whom it doesn't fit. Uh, uh, so I don't know where he got it. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah. <coughs> uh, dear Don, uh, Mal here again. <laughs> 
don't know if you remember, Mal, from your last time. Thanks for your advice last time. I just want to let you know all's on track on the women front. <laughs> just out of interest, how did you propose to your wife? <laughs> I, I hope Mal's uh, girlfriends are not here. <laughs> Curiosity, kill the cat, and it won't kill me because I won't satisfy it. <laughs> um, can you um, explain where the darkened room is that you sit with Tim Keller and John Piper? <laughs> when, when, um, when we get together for, for the, the Council of the Gospel Coalition or for a national conference, or we get together in, in, in any of these places, then we, we, there's a Christian outfit that, that does videotaping. They're a really professional bunch. And they, they select a room and they set up curtains all around it to make it dark and have three cameras coming in from different angles, sometimes four, with professional crews and all of that. Not, not these sort of little video-type cameras. These are professional BBC-style cameras, you know. And, and so they, they, they set it all up that way so that uh, with that black background, it means that all of the focus is on the face and, and the hands and discussion and so on. So that's the way they, 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 they do it. They've done it that way for years. And we'll probably continue doing it that way. But it, it's not one room. It's different places depending on where we're meeting. That's how it's set up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, moving back to Canada for a moment, would you agree that Arcade Fire are the best band to leave Montreal? Have you heard of Arcade I'm sure Fire? That this, this is, I'm sure that this is a temporary phenomenon that will not stand the test of time. <laughs> uh, speaking of Montreal, or maybe you didn't actually go to university, where did you go to university? McGill in Montreal. McGill. Very important question is here, how did you get the Christmas tree out of the stairwell? Uh, uh, we didn't. Uh, there, there were four workers sent up from... Uh, the university of uh, the university grounds crew connected with the Montreal Neurological Institute, who spent about a day and a half tying up all the branches again before they got the thing out. It was very impressive. Um, the, the warden of, of our of our um, dorm uh, he had a he called us all to a, a meeting that night, and he, I, I didn't explain in in in, in in the description, there were the two wings and the stairs at the front. But in, on the front of the stairs, then there was there was this. It was it was all glass, so that you could see the stairs from the outside. So that's why when the tree went up and the branches came out, everybody could see this massive tree that went right up our stairwell. You see, and then the big banner over the top, Molson is better. And so the, the warden called a meeting of all the residents that night, all 220 of us, and he ripped us up and down and chewed us back and forth because nobody would admit to having done this. You see, it just happened. And, and they, they, they never did catch any of us. And, 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 um, and he chewed us up and down and back to front and said, okay, now I've done what I was told to do. Meanwhile, congratulations. Well done. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, speaking of Christmas, did you tell your uh, children that there was such a person as Santa Claus? Um, what we did all along was distinguish in all children's stories between true and make-believe. So uh, you, you know, we, we, we read uh, all kinds of stuff to them, you know, fairy tales, and, and, and the, the literature sweep was huge. But all along, we insisted on making a distinction between real and make-believe. And we put Santa from the very beginning in the make-believe camp. Important, interesting, funny, um, but in the make-believe camp. I don't think that they were thereby emotionally crippled. Yeah. <laughs> a few people are having to go home and rewrite those Christmas cards. <laughs> um, <clears throat> for a Christian who doesn't know any of the biblical languages but is serious about studying and fearing God's word, which Bible translation should they use? Um, there is no perfect translation. But the one that I use um, is the NIV. So as long uh, the, the, NIV, the old NIV was, was updated and updated and updated. Now there's been a quantum jump in the 2011 NIV. That's what I've been reading from. And um, I like it for its combination of contemporary English, um, pretty good accuracy, and um, uh, uh, readability. Um, 
Uh, I know that there are a lot of conservative Christians who prefer the ESV, the English uh, Standard Version. Um, For all kinds of reasons, that's not my preference. I don't mind people who do use it. Um, But, but for example, I have many, 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 many uh, friends in the so-called two-thirds world for whom English is their second or third language. And almost without exception, they complain that they can't make sense of the ESV. The the language is too stilted. So what am I going to say? Just stick with it. Learn some more English. I mean, I I don't I don't think so. Um, uh, Moreover, I think that the language in the ESV was archaic the day it dropped from the press because it's basically the 1952 RSV, which was based on the 1901 ASV, updated in some respects. I just think the language is is too archaic for for contemporary use. Moreover, I mean, what the ESV keeps... It's all, it's, it's all my friends who have translated it and pushed it and, and, and so on, and, and I, I, I want to respect their judgments and their feelings about these matters. From their point of view, uh, more direct translation is better translation. Uh, I, I am sure that 90 or 95% of the linguists in the world would dispute that. Um, more direct translation is not always better translation. It may be worse translation um, be, because because you don't say the same thing in in, in different languages. For example, um, in 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 Greek, it is good style to begin most sentences with a conjunction with an and. That's why so many sentences in the King James version begin with an and. In English, that's bad style. So if you put in all the ands, what it sounds like is, um, boy oh boy, the Bible writers sure didn't know how to write prose, did they? Do do do, do you see? Um, in, in, in good Greek, it, it, loves, it loves subordinate clauses. So all of Ephesians um, 1, um, 1 to 13 is one long sentence in Greek. But in English, that's just bad style. You, you've, you've got to break it up uh, into, 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 into shorter sentences. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's... Or, again, Greek loves to put things in the passive voice. But anybody who writes English prose is told, put as many things as possible into the active voice. Um, if, you, if you work in the Mel- Neo-Melanesian languages, there is no passive voice, which means all those Greek passives have got to be put in the, in, into the active, and, and you've got to figure out what, where the subject is, which, making, which means you're making choices that the in- initial Greek writers didn't, didn't have to make. And, and on and on and on and on. There's so many differences from language to language, from language to language. And, and the, by, by choosing the more direct option, then you have a translation that is going to sound foreign and artificial. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't sound foreign and artificial to many Christian ears because we've been brought up in the sort of King James's um, ASV, RSV, now ESV heritage, and we've become familiar with that language. But you, you try and give it to, to, to even literate people on the street today who have never read the Bible and don't know any of the language, and it just does sound unnecessarily foreign. So um, I still think a better option for, for church use, for personal use, is, is, is the NIV, now the, the NIV 2011. Mm-hmm. Now, I know what the others would say by way of comeback and, and all the rest, but that's, that's the way I would answer. Okay. Um, should Christians have celebrated the death of Osama bin Laden? That's a good question. Um, celebrated is certainly the wrong world. world. I mean, how, word. I mean, how 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 do you want? Why should you want to celebrate uh, the death of any human being? Um, on on the other hand, um, um, should should Christians have celebrated the death of Adolf Hitler? Now, Osama was not in the same class, but he was trying to be. Um, again, celebration is not quite the right word. Did he? Was he responsible for many, many, many deaths? And incidentally, for far more Muslim deaths than for deaths in the West because his agents were constantly uh, terrorizing fellow Muslims who didn't see things um, the way he saw them. Um, so he was responsible on any conservative estimate for tens of thousands of deaths, most of them Muslim. And, um, and, and this not in the context of the... The, the power of the sword that God does give to the state to promote justice, but in the name of an 
ad hoc group in the name of his understanding of Islam that was still responsible for killing indiscriminately men, women, and children. Uh, do I think, therefore, that he had to be stopped? That this was a just course of action? Yes, I do. Should the death be celebrated? No, it should not. It should be mourned. Um, is it wrong for women to preach or teach in the congregation of the church? If so, does this mean the gifts of the Spirit are gender-specific? Um, to, to ask the question, are gifts of the Spirit gender-specific, uh, is... Um, at least potentially, to uh, slant the discussion a, a, a certain way. Um, and to get even-handed discussion, you really, sh- you, you really ought to try to raise the questions in the categories that the Bible itself uses. And then the question becomes, does the spirit who gives gifts, does the spirit who gives the word, teach in the word that there are some distinctions to be made between men and women, and if so, what are they, and on what passages are they based? That is asking the same question, but without quite the same tendentiousness, it's, it's, it seems to me. Um, and then I would argue that um, uh, on two fronts, there is a distinction made between men and women in Scripture. Uh, one is in the home, Uh, where it seems to me that God has given a certain responsibility of leadership to the man. That does not mean that he's to say, jump, and when I I say jump, you ask how high on the way up. It doesn't mean anything like that. There is a complementarity. Men and women are both equally made in the image of God. They're both justified justified by grace through faith. Um, There is no no ground whatsoever for the attitude, uh, Lord, you keep them ignorant and I'll keep them pregnant. Um, All of those things are just... um, heinous and, and uh, should have no place amongst, amongst Christians um, uh, nor, nor is the Bible uh, uh, authorizing injustice so there should be uh, unequal pay for equal work or, the Bible is not interested in defending any of those kinds of things um, yet at the same time you cannot seriously read passages like Ephesians 5 and, and many of the so called house tables and so on without seeing that there is a distinction made in scripture itself and then in the church, I would want to word it carefully. The best wording that I can find to summarize the whole uh, set of texts involved is that the church recognized teaching authority over men um, is not to be exercised by the woman. But I want all those words in. And the, the outworking and application of those words uh, will be different amongst uh, different Christians who see the application slightly differently. Um, do I think that women should get theological education if they can? Yes. Do I encourage them therein? Yes. Are there places and con- contexts for teaching the word of God evangelistically, expositorily? Yes. Um, but at the end of the day, I still think that it's difficult to take passages like 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 seriously without seeing that there is some sort of distinction to be made. And I would argue that if that is the case, and it has to be argued on textual grounds, on biblical grounds, then it is both for the woman's good and for the man's good, as well as for the church's good. It's not something that establishes God's meanness. It establishes, rather, the diversity in gifts and graces in the church and, and, uh, and is ultimately for the good, and or, good order of society, for the family, and so on, so on, so on. And meanwhile, I would also say that while men are asking questions like that, as well as women asking questions like that, you also want to emphasize other biblical texts, like um, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? If it means anything at all, it means he is to love her self-sacrificially. That's how Christ loved the church. So I want to know in any marriage where the man is talking all the time about his rights of leadership and all of that. I want to ask him, what are you cheerfully volunteering uh, as self-sacrifice for your wife's good? Because unless you are um, loving your wife self-sacrificially for her good, you're a hypocrite. 
And that can mean all kinds of things. It could mean staying in some evenings and making sure you do the nappies while your wife finishes her her degree in microbiology or whatever. I mean, it could mean all kinds of things. But somewhere along the line, there has to be self-sacrifice for the wife's good or else you're disobeying Christ. That, too, is part of the biblical teaching. And um, in my experience, most women don't object nearly so much to some leadership on the husband's part where he's loving herself sacrificially as Christ loved the church. Final question uh, on a wor- on work ethic. <clears throat> uh, work ethic is very important, whatever we turn our hand to. But what is the place of ambition in a Christian's life and career, whether secular work or especially in ministry? Is being ambitious a, a healthy characteristic? It's like almost any other uh, human um, characteristic. It can be good and it can be evil. Uh, we can we can we can turn it to good or evil. Uh, even work itself, work itself, is mandated by God. It's 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 a good thing. It's to be offered up to God. There's a very recent book by Tom Nelson, who's a member of the Council of the Coalition, who's written a book on work, how Christians should view work. I'd strongly urge you to buy it. I've forgotten the exact title, but if you look up Tom, it's not Thomas, but Tom Nelson on Amazon.com and put in the word work, it'll, it'll pop up somewhere. It's just been out a month or so. Um, but it's very good for recovering the notion of work as a vocation, uh, different jobs, uh, different kinds of work, where you offer your work, whether it's as a dustbin collector or an astrophysicist or whatever, a nurse. or You offer the work up to God. You self-consciously offer it to him, um, and, and you, you work in order to please him. Now, if that becomes the way you think about these things, and there are lots of biblical reasons for, for, for thinking about work along those lines, then honest work, a day's work for a day's pay, and, and, and work with integrity and doing your best and, and so on. All of those things are then cheerfully offered up to God as, as part of our individual worship of him, regardless of whether you're in vocational ministry or vocational microbiology. Um, now, within that framework, clearly there is a way of perverting that so that um, your, your um, pursuit of a certain kind of career um, it becomes your point of self-identity. And you, you, you want to be a good doctor, not so as to serve God and serve your patients and do good, but so that you'll be thought of as a good doctor. And that, that can be just as corroding as uh, you, you, you not so much want to be holy as you want to be thought holy. So do you want to work because you're offering it up to God or because you want people to think of you as the best in your field? The line between the two can existentially be very thin, yet, boy, a distinction has to be made. So that if your entire um, self-identity is bound up with your work and how well you do and how far you are up the pecking order, then the work, which itself might be a good thing, has become an idolatrous thing. Many, many, many idols are good things that have become too important so that they're displacing God. Many idols. Not all idols are intrinsically bad things. So, so, so clearly, you've got to watch your heart on all those kinds of fronts. Um, let, me, let me just tell you a story. This, this concerns a minister, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones. When he was dying of cancer, but, but, and, and listen, his work, his work didn't have to be the ministry. It could be any ministry, and he would have given the same answer. When he was dying of cancer, um, uh, Ian Murray had ready access to him because he ultimately was the family-ordained biographer of of the man. And about six months before Lloyd-Jones died, Ian asked him this question. This didn't get into the biography. This is that he's told some of us in private conversation. He he, he asked the doctor one day, um, how are you coping emotionally? You know, for decades, you have been one of the premier preachers in the world. You've seen thousands, probably tens of thousands of, of conversions. You're used to preaching to thousands. Um, your books are, keep rolling out. Ultimately, there were 72 books of his uh, transcribed sermons. Uh, you've been instrumental in, 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 with others in forming all kinds of institutions, uh, instrumental in starting up Tyndale House after World War II with others and, 
and rejuvenating UCCF uh, in the UK, uh, instrumental in founding Banner of Truth uh, Trust uh, with its press and its journal, uh, the, the Puritan Conferences, the Westminster Conference for Pastors and so on, um, uh, training a whole new generation in expository preaching. You've done it all. And now it takes all of your strength to get out of bed Put on your suit. He always got dressed in a three-piece suit. Sit in a chair and edit a manuscript for an hour and then take off your clothes get back into bed. How are you coping now that you've been put on the shelf? Lloyd-Jones responded, quoting Luke 10. Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I am perfectly content. So if, in fact, you've got to the place in your job where your being content is bound up with your self-identity as a, a medical practitioner and how well you do, I mean, there's a sense in which you offer the work to God and you, you ought to take some joy in that. But if, in fact, your self-identity is now so tied up with this that if now you became <coughs> crippled or put on the shelf, it wouldn't affect your fundamental joy because your deepest joy comes from the fact that your name is written in heaven, then I don't worry about your ambition. If, on the other hand, um, your ambition now means that if you approach old age or retirement or sudden disability, and now your entire world is shattered because of it, then you've got an idol. Don, thank you very much. Uh, Can we just show some appreciation? (laughs) 